We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships, and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Good morning. Welcome, world, to Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. I'm with today, as, as always, with Don Newsom, founder and, uh, and also owner of BBS Radio, who helps me produce this show and is going to update us on the latest news about the ever-expanding services and technical upgrades to BBS. Good morning, Don. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. I uh, love being here. Thank you, Johnny. Well, well my pleasure. <laughs> it's been a week here at BBS Radio. Of that, there's no doubt. Um, some weeks are really excellent, and some aren't so excellent. Uh, this last week, we had a main system fail, a main computer um, for our video productions, and we had to uh, quickly get another one. Um, and uh, then we bought a brand new Eurodesk board, board and that uh, went out after nine days. Uh, we had it in action for 34 days. We missed the 30-day return deadline by four days because we unpacked it late. And then nine days after setting up, the whole left channel went out. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a sinkhole uh, last week, no doubt. <laughs> well, can I say that, can I ask you this? Since you've been an entrepreneur for a while, sure. don't, do you agree with the idea that a, a real entrepreneur has to be able to be able to actually fail in certain elements and have things break down and all kinds of things go wrong in order to really succeed? Do you agree with that? You know, you have to learn some way, don't you? If you don't learn through some hard knocks, you're never going to gain the wisdom you desire. So. I think that those trials and tribulations are an absolute must. I mean, I've, you know, I've rarely met a successful person that's never been wrong or never did anything wrong. That just doesn't happen. And usually the very successful people, they, they go through it. Um, they go through the ringer, so to speak. And uh, that's no different. In this industry, it's a fairly new industry. It's got a lot of software, a lot of hardware, and it all ties together. And there's so many areas it to go wrong and um you know so you're always you're always vigilant because again so many things go wrong and usually it goes in waves of three we've been experiencing that lately <laughs> yeah waves of three but but the result you know i i, I kind of wrote, started writing a book called all my heroes of failure 
and I, during the research I was doing, I mean, I just saw some amazing things about people who are just hugely successful and how, how greatly they were willing to fail. <laughs> but they proceed, they, they never lost touch with their goal. So, uh, they, so they might fail very big, but at the end, there could be tremendous rewards. And that's, I guess, right. the, the wonder, the wonderful aspect of being an entrepreneur. Right. It's, it's well, the fortitude, the, the constitution, and the perseverance uh, all helps develop the character of the, of the people and the business. Absolutely. Well, now we're going to uh, take a break from, the, from a really beautiful portrait of what we both admire, entrepreneurship, into the more delicate and difficult subject that our program usually deals with. You know, as of late, we've been concerned on the development of the kind of political base that in a democratic country can turn people into blind followers of a certain authoritarian personality. As we have pointed out, this can happen to very sensitive and highly intelligent people. Now, so the name of our program today is called Creating a Political Base, uh, number two, Racism Rehearsing the Path to Tyranny. Um, so, the first thing is, we want to um, see how this can happen. How can, how can the base, the base of people be, be cultivated? First thing to, is to create fear in a person. If the fear is large enough and is deemed realistic, the person may begin to believe. The existence of fear, especially fear which is permeated to the very bottom of one's unconscious, produces a kind of spiritual deficit in one's soul. One feels helpless unless one is very much grounded, very much grounded in this spirit. And I cannot honestly say that it's so easy and that the road to the, this kind of grounding cannot be long and treacherous. Several events affected me in that way, but let me just mention 9-11. The second thing is that an authoritarian personality must do, must do is to produce a really good story as to the person, group, or the ideology that is producing that life or soul-threatening events or, or activities that is causing that fear. If the fear is strong enough and the story good enough, then that person may accept it. And owing to the third component of the scenario, will act on it with direct action themselves or the support of compliance with the authoritarian's action. I bought into Colin Powell's claim about the weapons of mass destruction and threat to the United States by Saddam Hussein. This third element is buying the fact that this person or group, which in this case was Bush and his associates, is uniquely qualified or capable of solving the problem. I bought the need for the war in Iraq. There were facts around that could have made me skeptical, certainly about 9-11 at that time, but I did not investigate almost anything. I joined up on the cheering squad for the second Gulf War. If these three sequences are met, one will lose one's discrimination in one's conscience, and one will feel an immense adulation for the savior, the authoritarian leader, the one and only solution to key problems to survival, freedom, and, and freedom. There's another aspect to this. And that is that we're vulnerable, all of us, because in a sense, this is in, in related in various spiritual cosmologies in different ways with different, some distorted, some probably pure. We have fallen from our natural state of consciousness. 
we have fallen from an experience of the Shekinah. Now, the Shekinah is a, it is not a normal state of consciousness for most people, because most people live in a world which they don't feel a sort of communion with God on a regular basis, and maybe they don't, never feel it. They feel they're concerned with their family, they're concerned with their jobs, they're concerned with problems in political life, but they don't feel this experience. Now, other people feel the experience of altered states of consciousness, but it doesn't necessarily have the qualities of the Shekinah. The Shekinah has a quality of righteousness, of goodness. And so the personality that is absorbed in this incredible level of spirituality will reflect even very powerfully what we'd call the human conscience, the sense of of, of righteousness and goodness, and, and really have a love for all, all mankind, as, as t spoken about in the Declaration, will have a sense of that equality based on experience, not just on an assumption. So I want to go into um, the aspect of sort of ordinary human thinking again. I want to discuss the relationship between polarized thinking and the type of thinking that comes in association with the divine presence. Obviously, my presentation analysis of ideas regarding the experience of this core kind of consciousness is based on what I have garnered from my own life. Everything I say or anyone says about such things needs to be diligently investigated and confirmed by your own experience. When a so I'm going to give you my opinion here. When a, person, a person's personality is consciously attuned, at least to some extent, to the divine presence in a way that is not altered by various types of programming that assume knowledge of its nature. The personality assumes a certain degree of harmony with the divine presence and its own true nature. Now, everybody can petition God, and you can actually, you know, sense petition for, uh, you know, the awareness of God if you're a black magician, or if you're if you're involved in Buddha, or things that a lot of people would think are quite negative and probably are a lot of them but whatever you can, you will bring to yourself a certain amount of assumptions if you haven't really cleared your mind of those assumptions you need to be able to think freely of those assumptions you need to be able to be alone so to speak in, in, with yourself and 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 not influenced by people's words by by your your parents, by society, by by books, you have to have a sort of separation there, so you can become unified with what it actually is is maybe your true self. People talk about some of you know people talk about God as potentially a sort of a dictator or a tyrant. What what's missing in that understanding is that you have a piece of God inside of you. And so you're not being dictated to by someone else. You're being dictated by yourself. You you commune with something that is part of you, even though it may be a, to, to many a much larger part of you, but you're actually there. You're actually a piece of God manifesting in this world. That's what your consciousness is now. If you are truly attuned to the Shekinah, but you can be attuned to many other kinds of consciousness that are not that way. So um, 
if if you don't, real experiences of the divine presence has powerfully good transformational effects and involves, as I said, the experience of a non-conditional and transformative type of love. The effect on all one's opinions and behavior can be radically affected by this experience, with the core effect being a concern to replicate and transmit the righteousness experienced in the state to other human beings. It is possible, therefore, to discern the meaning and authenticity of positions, statements, and doctrines reflected in spiritual and secular written, spoken, um, and spoken presentations. Right now, I'd like to um, take a little break, and I'd like to go into, um, first of all, we'll have a few messages, one for our our excellent audio and video editing services, another for Kenny's dramatic story of a scientist who dares defy a corrupt GMO manufacturing company and winds up in Russia to hide from the from the company's ruthless outreach against him in a very popular, and then we'll have a very popular song by the highly prolific and talented Stephanie Slevin. So we'll play C17, KEB2A, and MS6 in sequence, please. This is Johnny Blue Star, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. One of our highly useful services is our audio and video editing service, overseen by Hassan Khan, our Director of Technical Services. We can also help edit and write the original content for your video and even produce it, depending on its content and direction. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com and fill out the contact form. In Ken Ede's book, The Involuntary Spy, Seth Rogen, a scientist, after having discovered a major deception created by a multi-billion dollar worldwide agribusiness giant that he works for, is driven by his conscience to release the information to the public at the peril of his reputation, career, and life itself. To do this, he must take refuge in Moscow. Here is an excerpt. Chapter 4 Yuri helped Seth settle into the safe house in Moscow. Tomorrow night, he would take the nine-hour flight to the Far East. From the apartment, he could see the colorful and distinctive towers of St. Basil's Cathedral from his window, and the glittering gold onion domes of the Church of Annunciation in the Kremlin. This was the Kremlin he had seen so many times on television. Back then, during the Cold War, it had represented the seat of the Empire of Evil. Now, it was oddly beautiful. The American press was already doing damage control on Seth's report to Russia today. The president called it propaganda and said that the United States was against the manufacture of biological weapons. Spokesmen from the company said that Seth's report to RT should be disregarded as the words of a traitor and a thief. Because of his fleeing the country, Seth's story was discredited in every mainstream media report. Okay, your name now is George Amers said Yuri, smiling, holding out documents. Here is new passport. I'm Canadian? Yes. Does that mean I have to say A all the time? Seth, Russians don't care what you say. But don't talk to people. Don't talk to people. And don't go anywhere. Just to work and back home. Sounds boring. Isn't that what you guys do in America anyway? Well, yeah. Okay. Don't make friends. If you want a girl, we get you girl. That sucks. 
Look, it's only for six months. Then you can do what you want. If you see anything suspicious, call me. Six months, eh? Yes, six months. Oh, and shave mustache and color hair. What? You prefer shave head and color mustache? No, no, that's okay. I'll take the hair color. And we fix nose. What's wrong with my nose? Nose too big. It's not. We fix anyway. Okay, let me see if I've got it. Don't go anywhere. Don't make friends. Sleep with prostitutes that you send to me and wear a disguise. Yes, you are smart. Don't forget to use lenses I gave you for eyes. And what? Lose some weight. Seth worked on his disguise with the materials Yuri had left in the safe house. He said a fond farewell to the mustache that had been with him since high school and picked a dark brown color to mask his light brown hair. With the contacts in, his eyes changed from green to brown. He didn't even recognize himself. The surface disguise was the easy part. Being George Amers would be the true disguise to master. I may have marmalade on my toast And you may have your caviar I may walk to work in my second-hand shoes And you drive in your fancy car I'm down here and you're up there You're giving me the looks like you don't care But they say love and hate are so very close So I know that you love me the most I know by the way you stare at me That deep down inside you care for me You may drink champagne to my cup of tea But nobody freaking cares And you say I ain't the one for you That I'm way down there beneath the view But look at what your poor shake's done to you And nobody freaking cares She took your money and laughed at you And then slept with all your mates and they were laughing too So let's kick her to the curb, yeah, me and you For nobody freaking cares And I know you said bad things of me But deep down inside you care for me For they say love and hate are so very close So I know that you love me the most drink in your one night stand so please don't judge me by your own bad hand you stand up straight just be the man for nobody freaking cares and come down off your mighty horse and take a chance on me and we'll run the course and we'll show the bitch we don't do divorce for nobody freaking cares and I know you said bad things of me But deep down inside you care for me For they say love and hate are so very close So I know that you love me the most Yes, I know that you love me the most Okay, so now we're going to go into the platform And um, you're going to have to forgive me But I'm going to speak about Trump a recent Democratic poll, a Quinnipiac poll, states that half of America thinks that Trump is a racist and half do not. Actually, I think that, is an, that it is undoubtedly true that he is. He thinks certain races are somehow intrinsically better than others. According to this 
report, 49% of Americans, including 11% of Republicans, believe that Trump is a racist. What's more, the poll found that 22% of Republicans and 55% of voters think he has emboldened people who hold racist views to express those views, beliefs publicly. Meanwhile, 50% of voters think that the main motivation for Trump's immigration policies is a sincere interest in controlling our borders, while 44% say the main motive is racial beliefs. Now, I believe in controlling our borders, probably more uh, as effectively as you possibly can. But I don't believe in uh, taking people's children away from them. And I don't believe in taking people who might be asylum seekers and putting them in chains and putting them in detention. There has to be a better way than this. Uh, an interesting um, point here to go back in time, because we, we should go back and see, you know, what's going on now? Did it go on before in, in Trump's universe? And uh, there's a, an interesting article by Nicholas Kristof called, Is Trump a Racist? And he said, hey, I'm going to read it. Has the party of Lincoln just nominated a racist to be president? We shouldn't toss around such accusations lightly. So I've looked back over the last 40 years of Donald Trump's career to see what the record says. One early red flag arose in 1973 when President Richard Nixon's Justice Department, not exactly the radicals of the day, sued Trump and his father, Fred Trump, for systematically discriminating against blacks in housing rentals. I've waded through 1,021 pages of documents from that legal battle and they are devastating. Donald Trump was then president of the family real estate firm, and the government amassed overwhelming evidence that the company had a policy of discriminating against blacks, including those serving in the military. To prove that discrimination, blacks were repeatedly dispatched as, was automatically dispatched, dispatched as testers. Um, and uh, they, they went to the Trump apartment buildings to inquire about vacation, vacancies. And while testers were soon sent after, uh, these people um, were black. So the, the, black, the black person who was this tester was told that nothing was available. But the white testers were told that, oh, come on in. Let's look at our vacancies. A former building superintendent working for the Trumps explained that he was told to code any application by a black person with the letter C for colored, apparently so the office would know to reject it. A Trump rental agent said that Trumps wanted to rent only to, quote, Jews and executives and discourage renting to blacks. Donald Trump furiously fought the civil rights suits in the courts and the media, but the Trumps eventually settled on terms that were widely regarded as a victory for the government. Three years later, the government sued the Trumps again for continuing to discriminate. And even if Donald Trump in inherited, I'm speaking for myself here, the firm's discriminatory policies, he allied himself decisively in the 1970s housing battle against the civil rights movement. If someone perhaps doubts the story, there's another person who documented the history of these Trump's properties. We'll begin with an audio version of a musical uh, portion of this complaint which is also chronicled in the writings of the singer-songwriter, which we'll discuss shortly, in 37. I don't like the way my landlord's treating me. I don't like the way Mr. Trump is treating me. I 
an old line to way that my landlord's treating me. Jump in the lock of this will do. Well, I don't want to do about it. Yeah, that was Woody Guthrie. Now, here's a little information from an, by an author named Thomas Kaplan in uh, something called First Draft in January 2016. The article was called Woody Guthrie Wrote of His Contempt for His Landlord, Donald Trump's Father, published in the First Draft newsletter of the New York Times, <clears throat> which we just mentioned. It is noted how in 1950, Woody Guthrie rented an apartment in a complex called Beach Haven, owned by Fred C. Trump, our current president's father. He soon became embittered by old man Trump, as reported by Will Kaufman, a British scholar who discovered Guthrie's writings in Tulsa at the Woody Guthrie Center. Guthrie wrote how he imagined that Fred Trump knew about the level of racial hatred it stirred up in Beach Haven. Here's a short clip of an actual version of his song. He reworked the song to, to be called I Ain't Got No Home, and 36. Racial hate he stirred up in the blood pot of the human heart when he drawed that color line here in his 1800 family project. Beach Haven ain't my home, I just can't pay my rent. My money's down the drain and my soul is badly bent. Beach Haven looks like heaven where no black ones come to roam. No, 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 old man Trump, old Beach Haven ain't my home. See, God don't know much about no color lines. Of course, this particular song, this was directed towards Trump's father. But later on, Trump and his father in the 1970s were running, co-running their, their uh, real estate company, which had these discrimination suits. And other lyrics, uh, um, Woody Guthrie wrote, Beach Haven, which was the name of the, the place, ain't my home. I just can't pay this rent. My money's down the drain. My soul is badly bent. Beach heaven looks like heaven where no black can come to Rome. No, 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 old man Trump, old beach haven ain't my home. Mr. Uh, Kaufman, the scholar wrote this information, eventually wrote Woody Guthrie, American Radical. He was not shy about pointing out how Guthrie would be repulsed by Trump's campaign, contrasting comments on Mexicans and music to the sympathetic and sad Guthrie song about a plane crash that killed Mexican workers. To those that love them, love them, they have the real names, but to everyone else in that feeble culture, they call them deportees, famous song by him. Anyway, to, to take another tact, I, I think it's pretty amazing that Woody Guthrie would be involved in this. Uh, but let's listen to N81 now about the Trump discrimination lawsuit. 14,000 apartments in 39 different buildings, all mostly white tenants. That is, until the Department of Justice took notice in 1973 and slammed Donald Trump and his father, Fred Trump, with a lawsuit. 
Trump management was charged with discriminating against African Americans and breaking federal law. Donald Trump, then just 27, was president of the company. The Department of Justice accused the Trumps of violating the Fair Housing Act, arguing they were turning away renters based on race and color. Who tipped them off? Local activists, so-called testers, posing as potential renters at Trump's buildings, mainly in Brooklyn and Queens. Elise Goldweber was a lawyer for the DOJ's fair housing section at the time and was called on to handle the Trump case. When the black testers came, they were shown, they, they may have been shown apartments, but were told nothing was available. Whereas when the white testers came, yes, there were, were things that were available. That would be the norm. And if the Trumps did rent to a black person, Goldweber recalls, they would do so only at one building in Brooklyn, reserving the other buildings for white tenants. That the white people would live in Trump Village and the uh, people of color would um, live in Flatbush. And according to the Justice Department, they even had a secret coding system to do it, a racial code. Here's how. Some of the applications were marked with a C, which we learned that it meant colored, so that the, the prospective tenants who had come in um, were noted to be colored. Yes, you heard her right. The Department of Justice alleged applications submitted by prospective African-American renters were designated with a secret code, such as C for colored, to indicate a black person was looking to rent. In true Trump fashion, Donald Trump hit back, calling the government's accusations absolutely ridiculous and telling the court, I have never, nor has anyone in my organization ever, to the best of my knowledge, discriminated or shown bias in the renting of our apartments. Trump's lawyer said the government's suit failed to give names, addresses, or specific incidences of discrimination. Claiming the lawsuit caused substantial damage to their business and reputation, Trump took the most unusual step of suing the Justice Department for defamation, seeking $100 million in damages. But that countersuit was tossed out by the judge. Even so, the Trump family maintained they never discriminated based on color but were instead trying to avoid renting to people on welfare. Two years later, in 1975, Trump and his father settled the case, agreeing not to discriminate against anyone. They also promised to advertise in publications aimed at minorities, familiarize themselves with the details of the Fair Housing Act, and notify civil rights groups of apartment vacancies. The Department of Justice claimed victory, but the Trumps never admitted any wrongdoing reportedly noting the settlement was in no way an admission of a violation. Well, that was a legal problem that went on for a long time. But as, as she said, the uh, government, they settled with the government. They had two actual cases, though. And uh, so that, that's uh, a little bit of a sad story. Yeah, of course, you could always take one or the other side, but um, it seems a uh, pretty uh, strong, strong situation here. Let's take a break with two messages and a clip of a wonderful song from Patty Greer, a filmmaker with a strong focus on crop circles. Preview her work and rent or buy her, uh, buy her films at cropcirclefilms.com. Besides her amazing films and talents as a singer, songwriter, musician, cannot be surpassed. So that's C2, C5, and M44.
My company, New Galaxy Enterprises, is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio, or video products on the internet, television, or radio, musical scores for advertising, television, or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing, and useful technology, and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast, and we offer client-based and collaborative products, as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. That's www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you. Dr. Yuga Rodier has published four books on health issues covering practically all chronic health problems. You may find them by accessing his website at yugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com. Gut health is the most academic, while switching off chronic disease is the most patient-oriented with simple recipes to implement his nutritional protocols. a nice anthem for the planet. May peace prevail on earth. Patty Greer. Anyway, getting back to our more difficult show here, following somewhat later than the discrimination violations, there came an incident that gives us a good little peek at Trump's sense of justice in N82. You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. And it's more than anger. It's hatred. And I want society to hate him. In New York City in the late 80s and early 90s, the case of the Central Park jogger was notorious. 
In April of 1989, a white woman who had been jogging was found brutally raped and beaten nearly to death in Central Park. Not long after the woman was discovered, four black teenagers, one Latino teenager, were charged and jailed for the crime. The gruesome case whipped up an unbelievable hysteria throughout the city. The media ginning up fears with headlines about wolf packs and roving gangs and wilding. But the five boys, ages 14 to 16, had falsely confessed to the crime after hours of police interrogations. They were later tried, convicted, and sentenced to prison. But vindication for the group, known as the Central Park Five, came in 2002, when a convicted murderer and rapist confessed to the crime. And that confession was then corroborated by DNA. The prison sentences of the Central Park Five were overturned, but by that time they had already served between five and 13 years. In 2014, the men were awarded a $40 million settlement from New York City, a story that had gripped the city for years came to a close, and yet one Manhattan resident's obsession with the case continues to this day. Just weeks after the crime was committed in 1989, Donald Trump took out a full-page ad in four New York newspapers advocating the return of the death penalty. And when the city awarded the men a settlement in 2014, Trump wrote an editorial in the Daily News calling the settlement a disgrace. And now, even now, as a presidential nominee for the Republican Party, Trump hasn't allowed science or evidence to change his initial reaction to the case. Just this week, Trump said he still considers the men, again, exonerated by the criminal justice system and by DNA scientific evidence, guilty. Issuing a statement saying, quote, they admitted they were guilty. The police doing the original investigation say they were guilty. The fact that case was settled with so much evidence against them is outrageous. The woman so badly injured will never be the same. Joining me now is Yusuf Salam. He is one of the men wrongfully convicted in the Central Park Jogger case, later exonerated by DNA evidence. And Mr. Salam, first, um, how, how long, how old were you when you were arrested and how much time do you spend in prison? I was 15 years old when this happened and I've spent about seven years in prison, close to seven years. Uh, before we get to Donald Trump, I mean, what, what was it like to go into the system at that age and spend your formative adolescent early adult years in prison for something you did not do? You know, to go to prison for a crime like that, that's the absolute worst crime that you can go to prison for. I mean, the only crime that Trump's rape is child molestation. And I remember early on, they had these polls that they were doing. They kept saying, you know, what are the inmates going to do when these guys get to prison? You know, untold horrors were uh, mentioned and we were scared to death. This was a situation where we had to grow up very, very quickly. We had to figure out how we were going to survive and fend for our lives. Um, it was the most horrific event I could have ever imagined. And so what is your reaction to a man who is trying to be the most powerful person in the world, arguably, who is on the precipice of possibly being president, saying now, in the last day, issuing a statement that you, despite all evidence, that you are guilty? You know, when I think about what he represents, and, and, and I mean, first of all, what he represents to me is very, very um, powerful and unfortunate. This blight, this, 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 this ad, this, this, this thing that he did to us, calling for the reinstatement of the death penalty, I always think that had this been the 1950s, we would have become modern-day Emmett Till's. They had published our names, our phone numbers, and our addresses in New York City's newspapers. And so what was happening was people began to call us at any time of the day or night you know, threaten us with hate mail and things of that nature. So by Donald Trump taking out this ad, what I, what, I, what I think is that he was really calling to see if there was somebody from the darker enclaves of society that would kick in our doors, 
drag us from our homes and hang us from trees in Central Park. That's the kind of sick type of justice that they were looking for. To, to be clear, this ad which ran that he paid for was, was basically calling for the death penalty for the assailants in this case, who at that point had been identified as, as juveniles, you among them, basically saying, we should kill these children. Right, right. You know, he wanted us, he wanted us dead. You know, when you look at the videotape, uh, the videotapes that he uh, made after, the statements that he made after that, it's very, very clear that he said that he wanted to hate us. He wanted us to be afraid. And by us, he was talking directly about the Central Park Five, but he was talking about also the black and brown people that we look at that are being shot down um, all around the country today. You know, if he's saying that he wants to be the law and order president, and he's talking about uh, policies and, 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 and practices that have been ruled unconstitutional and unjust, that being stop and frisk in New York City, and he's talking about he wants to bring this type of stuff back. I mean, I'm scared for my life. What happens if this person actually becomes president? Is he going to then go gunning for the Central Park Five because he wanted to murder us back in 1989 and he wants to maybe the same thing to happen to us today? I mean, when we won the lawsuit, one of the things that he said was this was the biggest heist this was the biggest heist in New York City history. He said that we were going to be rich rapists. And then all of a sudden now we have this, these video footage of him being produced, of him doing all of these, uh, you know, I just tweeted prior to getting on. I said, this is a, a dirty old man, yeah. you know, definitely not somebody that we want to be the president of these United States. The type of um, issues that he presents overwhelmingly causes us and we need to be, we need to push far far away from him. Mr. Salam, let me, quickly, do you feel he owes you an apology? I feel he owes us an apology. Do I feel like we will ever get it? I think if I held my breath and waited for him to, to give us an apology, I would probably pass out and turn blue in the face. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Yusuf Salam, thank you so much, sir, for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. In the 1989 interview, according to... Um, David Lee Hunart and Ian Prasad Philbrook from an article called Trump's Racism, the Definitive List. I'm just taking a little piece here and there. In, in a 1989 interview with Brian Gumbel, Trump stated, a well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white, white in terms of the job market. Fortune magazine reported that Trump's statement was not confirmed by studies of factual evidence concerning the impact of an applicant's race on their job prospects. In a 1991 book called Trump by John, Don John O'Donnell, he quoted Trump as saying, I've got black accountants at Trump Castle and at Trump Plaza. Black guys counting my money, I hate it. The only kind of people I want counting my money in short, are short guys wearing yarmulkes. Those are the only kind of people I want counting my money, nobody else. Besides that, I tell you something else. I think that guy, that guy's lazy, I'm talking about a specific accountant, and it's probably not his fault because laziness is a trait in blacks. In the 19 interview in 1997, he admitted that the information in the book was probably true. Two years later, when seeking the nomination of the Reform Party for president, he denied having made that statement. So another th interesting um, thing, in August, this is from an article called Mainers, people from 
name to defend Somali neighbors against Trump. In August 2016, Trump campaigned in Maine, which has a large immigrant Somali population. At a rally, he said, we've just seen many, many crimes getting worse all the time. And as Maine knows, a major destination for Somali refugees, right? Am I right? Trump also alluded to the risk of terrorism, referring to an incident in June 2016, when three young Somali men were found guilty of planning to join the Islamic State in Syria. Uh, just the point I'm making before I go back to this article, these were these weren't people born in Somali. They were people born here, and they were recruited by ISIS and wanted to go there to fight with the Islamic State. They got caught, but they weren't people who came from Somali. They were people like a lot of the people who actually committed terrorism here. They were people who were recruited online. In Lewiston, going back to the article, home to the largest population of Maine Somalis, the police chief said Somalis have integrated into the city and they have not caused an increase in crime. Crime is actually going down, not up. The mayor said Lewiston is safe and they all get along. At a Somali support rally following Trump's statements, the Portland mayor welcomed the city's Somali residents saying, we need you here. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins commented, Mr. Trump's statements disparaging immigrants who have come to this country legally are particularly unhelpful. Maine has benefited from people from Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and increasingly Africa, including our friends from Somali. June 2017, Trump said 15,000 immigrants from Haiti all have AIDS. It's 2017. And that 40,000 Nigerians, once, once, uh, seeing the United States would never go back to their huts in Africa. And then, just to sort of round things out, at the White House, he said on January 11th, he called for less immigration from Haiti and Africa and more from Norway, which the Norwegians didn't particularly like because of the amazing discrimination involved. Well, then, now we get into the, another interesting, really interesting thing, which is the the largely Afro-Americans, the kneeling for the NFL pro protests. And I'm going to um, read a bit from an article from Snopes, which is fact-checking. In September 2017, as many criticized the take-a-knee protest by National Football League players as anti-military, readers wrote in to ask if a veteran had played a role in Colin Kaepernick's decision to kneel during the national anthem in protest of police killings of Afro-Americans. Army, Army Special Forces veteran Nate Boyer has said that his conversations with Kaepernick influenced the former NFL player to kneel rather than sit during the anthem. Kaepernick began his protest by sitting on the bench during the anthem prior to a preseason game on August 14, 2016, when he was playing for the San Francisco 49ers. He was not in uniform at the time. The protest began garnering coverage when journalist Jennifer Lee Chan captured him sitting, this time in uniform, in a photograph prior to the team's third preseason pre game on August 26, 2016. <clears throat> Ten days later, Kaepernick wrote, spoke to reporters about the protest. The encounter included this exchange. The reporter says, so many people see the flag as a symbol of the military. How do you view it and what, what do you say to those people? Kaepernick said, I have great respect for the men and women that fought for in this country. I have family, I have friends 
that have gone and fought for this country and they fight for freedom, they fight for the people, they fight for liberty and justice for everyone. That's not happening. People are dying in vain because this country isn't holding their end of the bargain up as far as giving up freedom and justice and liberty to everybody. That's something that's not happening. I've seen videos, I've seen circumstances where men and women have been in the military, have come back and been treated unjustly by the country they have fought for, and they've been murdered by the country they fought for on our land. That's not right. When asked whether his protest could be construed as a, quote, blanket indictment of law enforcement in general, he said, there is police brutality. People of color have been targeted by police, so that's a large part of it, and they're government officials. They are put in place by the government. So that's something that this country has to change. There's things we can do to hold them more accountable, make those standards higher. You have people that practice law and are lawyers and go to school for eight years, but you can become a cop in six months and don't have to wait to have, you don't have to have the same amount of training as a cosmetologist. That's insane. Someone holding a curling iron has more education, more training than people who have a gun and are going to go out in the street to protect us. On August 30th, 2016, the Army Times published an open letter to Kaepernick from former Seattle Seahawks player Nate Boyer, who served as a Green Beret in U.S. military actions in both Afghanistan and Iraq. In the piece, Boyer reflected on how he felt standing on the field as the anthem played during his only appearance for the Seahawks. I thought about how far I'd come and the men I'd fought alongside who didn't make it back. I thought about those overseas who were risking their lives at that very moment. I selfishly thought about what I had sacrificed to go where I was. And while I, and while I knew I had no chance of making the Seahawks roster as a 34-year-old rookie, I was trying. That moment meant so much more to me than even playing in the game did. And to be honest, if I had noticed my teammates sitting on the bench, it would have really hurt me. I'm not judging you for standing up for what you believe in. It's your inalienable right. What you're doing takes a lot of courage, and I'd be lying if I said I knew what it was like to walk around in your shoes. I've never had to deal with prejudice because of the color of my skin. And for me to say that I can relate to what you've gone through is as ignorant as someone who's never been in combat zone telling me they understand what it's like to go to war. Boyer and Kaepernick met after the open letter was published and before San Francisco's final preseason game went on on September 2nd, 2016 in San Diego, the first time the quarterback knelt in front of the bench instead of sitting during the anthem. Boyer posted a photograph of himself with Kaepernick following the meeting and later said, we sort of came to a middle ground where, where he would take a knee alongside his teammates. Soldiers take a knee in front of fallen father's grave, fallen brother's grave, you know, to show respect. When we're on patrol and we go into a security hall, we take a knee and we pull security. Kaepernick's then teammate, Eric Reed, joined me in kneeling for the pro protest prior to that game. He recalled the experience in an op-ed published in the New York Times on September 25th, 2017. After hours of careful consideration and even a visit from Nate Boyer, a, fire, a retired Green Beret and former NFL player, we came to the conclusion that we should kneel rather than sit. The next day during the anthem, as a peaceful protest, we chose to kneel because it's a respectful gesture. I remember thinking our posture was like a flag blown at half-mast to mark a tragedy. So let's listen for a second here to um, K-86, Trump's uh, reaction to the kneeling. 
Luther and I, and everyone in this arena tonight, are unified by the same great American values. We're proud of our country. We respect our flag. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now. Out. He's fired. He's fired. Some owner's going to do that. He's going to say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country, because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for, okay? Everything that we stand for. I'd like to point out that, um, that besides kneeling, showing respect for the fallen soldiers, which I think is a very good testimonial, because they're fighting for something for the flag. It's also something you do in church. You kneel in the church. You kneel for prayer. There's different ways of kneeling, but this is one of them that's acceptable. I'm sure God likes it. And I would rather that we kneel before the flag and pay homage to the flag than, than desecrate the flag by going against the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and everything our country believes in. So I would say that uh, to try and wrap Trump trying to wrap him or himself around the flag and, and try and to try and go against the NFL players who do this heroic type of gesture at the expense of maybe some real challenges because Kaepernick still doesn't have a have a have a, a job uh, are, are, are really American heroes and not the, the spies kind of individuals that Trump would like to make them in. Now, this is it. We're, we're going to uh, take go to the end of our story here. After saying goodbye, we'll conclude with Caluso um, Wintergate singing a song she wrote with her husband, Jonima, called The Secret. They're, they're both uh, from Light Source. They are the singer-songwriters and performers for Light Source now. The Secret is her understanding of the relationship between detachment, communion, and the end of life. It is a fascinating song, challenging to the listener to understand whether you accept its point of view, reject it, or open to discover its reality. So we'll now go to INF Extra 2, Final Extra, and M30, The Secret. Thanks for joining Don Newsom and I on Inalienable and Free. Voice of the Coalition. As we go about developing our new organization, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, we hope you will consider the importance of taking part in the electoral processes of your government and asserting the rights you have to vote for the companies you respect and love by casting your ballot as a shareholder or as a consumer with what you buy. We hope soon to make this possible through a social network responsive to your needs to dialogue about your rights as a citizen but also to be able to effectively act in concert with like-minded colleagues who find representatives of government and business executives will hear your voice and appreciate your message. See you soon.
This is Johnny Blue Star. Imagine a dark night. The wind is crisp and cool. The sky cloudless and majestic. Perhaps you are walking alone or with a loved one. Scattered about the night sky are thousands upon thousands of points of light. Look above you, friends of this restless planet. Out there into the night sky, unknown worlds await. Beauty behind imagination. Intelligence beyond comprehension. Life in its infinite forms and variations, yet all from the same seed, the same fundamental vibration. A cosmic tapestry of infinite light, yet each thread unique and indispensable. Look above you, out into the vastness of the night sky, for your destiny lies out there, somewhere among the stars.